Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. We're so glad that you joined us today. My name is Ethan Long Henry, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Now, as conscious creatures, we humans seek to find meaning in our existence and in the things that we see around us. At some point in your life, you've probably asked the question, Who am I? Why am I here? And these questions have pressed strongly on the minds of people as long as we've been able to wonder about existence. And so, we do well to explore this question. What is life all about? Well, as Christians, we know that the answer to the question of what life is all about involves God. In John 17, 20-23, that we are to be one with God and one with one another as God is one within himself. To find complete relational unity with God and one another so we can enjoy eternal life. We know this because God has made us in his image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And he wants to maintain a relationship with us, his offspring, as called in Acts 17. We've strayed, though, from God's ways because we've subjected ourselves to sin and death. And God has reconciled us through Jesus in Romans 3 and 5. And it's only in Jesus Christ that we can find reconciliation with God, the right, good, and healthy way to live, and a call for resistance against the forces of darkness over the present age, and the ability to find true reconciliation with our fellow man, as we can find in Galatians 5, Ephesians 2, 4, and 6. In Christ, we have the hope of resurrection, eternal life in the presence of God, in Philippians 3, and at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, we as Christians may know these things, but do we live like it? Has this knowledge penetrated our heart and our actions? As it's been said, the longest journey in the whole world is between the human head and the human heart. Because we all too often give lip service to what we know is true from what God has made known in Scripture, but really in our lives, in our hearts, and in our practice, we capitulate to the meanings of the world, life we get from the world. And we shouldn't find this surprising. The pull toward worldly ways of thinking is very great, and it requires all of our energies to make sure that we resist them. And so to exhort one another toward relational unity with God and each other, we do well to expose the various purposes to life that the world has made ultimate and made as substitutes for what God has made known. And so let's continue that by exploring the general attitude we see so prevalently at work in the world, and that's living for the here and now. Is life all about the here and now? Because so many of the major trends that shape culture and society point us toward what we can call the tyranny of the present. Think about it. The secular consensus has landed on Epicureanism as its primary philosophy. Wait a second. What's Epicureanism? Well, Epicureanism is scientific reasoning as all-important. Uh, in original Epicurean philosophy, the idea is everything's just atoms crashing into each other. And so scientific evidence, in this view, is the basis on which all other knowledge is derived, and so is understanding and meaning. This is something that is very prevalent in the thinking of people in the world today. And really, of all the philosophies that people have come up with over the past few thousand years, only Epicureanism is fully compatible with that kind of scientific obsession. This idea, as we said, atoms are just crashing into each other, and there's no greater meaning in life. And when that's the case, as we see in Epicureanism, life is all about the here and now. And so, we should live to avoid pain and to find what is true pleasure in life and to enjoy it. That's what it was then, that's what it is now. In late capitalism, we have married Epicureanism with consumerism and hedonism. Going even beyond the ancients to just seek whatever we think is pleasurable, to find value in what we're able to use, enjoy, and then throw away. And so that's one way. 
in which we live in the tyranny of the present. The other, another is that society is very proud of itself in terms of the quote-unquote progress that it's made and, just as importantly, finds the past awkward and shameful. Because it's very hard to escape the progressivist viewpoint in our culture. We live in an age of rapid change, not unreasonably called liquid minority. It keeps changing, keeps morphing. Change really is value-neutral. It can be as problematic as it is beneficial, but our culture embraces change fully. And it only learns to rue the excesses and tragic consequences of change after it's all said and done. Uh, we don't try to prevent problems. We go fully forward. We see what problems exist and then try to fix them retroactively. And it doesn't go too well for us. Meanwhile, culture looks at the past as full of people and ideas and things which were just not as enlightened. They just didn't know better. And it's full of all kinds of horrific actions and ideas and shameful things. And as opposed to try to come to grips with them, try to make sure they don't happen again, uh, there's really kind of blinders thinking that we've come past that, that we've done, we're doing better now than they were then. We've learned our lesson and moved on. Whether or not we actually have, of course, is a different story, and therefore we try to create all kinds of distance between us and the past. And to suggest that there were virtues in the past would give many re reason to think that we want to go back to the Stone Age. We keep harking back to how things were going on in old times, and people think that we're just uh, primitive, or backwards, or not in line with modern thinking. And this has influenced culture all the way down to the level of the individual. After all, what is the self-help industry all about? The idea to help you make a new you that can leave the old you safely behind, right? And you can go and be a great new you until, of course, the time comes where we need to make an even newer you uh, that is better than the new you that, of course, is better than the old you, right? The same idea is in play. And so in a world where all people think they have, uh, that what they have in l is life right now, and life right now is better than at any point in the past... Why are we surprised when YOLO, you only live once, becomes the philosophy of the day? That it's all about them and all about the present moment. And that is what we mean by the tyranny of the present moment. The fact that people feel dominated by the current moment. They only think in terms of the current moment. Many live today without any regard about what's going to happen tomorrow. Why is it that historians must continually warn everyone that if you do not learn from the mistakes of the past, you're doomed to repeat them? How many fill their lives with busy work to try to press on and to avoid the stressful, traumatic thoughts of what has happened in the past or what might happen in the future? How many live according to the outrage, despair, or triumph of the most recent news cycle, constantly shifting focus as something new comes along in that cycle? And think about what happens to those who are still enduring the pain, difficulty, and cleanup work of disasters of the past year or the years before once the film crews have all left. How many must plead to have their plight remembered so that they're not forgotten? And yet, how quickly do we forget about what has happened once the next big thing comes along? It's been easy to feel, well, this is the worst year ever until the next one comes. And this even exists in the world of Christendom. There's this constant expectation that's existed for 2,000 years that everything that was written in Scripture about the end of days is gearing up to take place, and it's going to take place right now. And so, the tyranny of the present is a very real thing. Living in the here and now is a very real thing. How should we as Christians approach this? What should we do about it? How can we navigate life in ways that are faithful to what God has made known to us in Christ? As we begin, we cannot 
entirely condemn the suggestion of living for the here and now. In fact, there is much to commend the importance of the Christian living in the present. The James the Lord's brother, in James chapter 4 and verse 13, says the following, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James the Lord's brother is reminding us that life is ultimately vain. It's like a vapor. It's here one minute, gone the next. We're not guaranteed another moment. Our life may end at any time. The Lord may return at any moment. And we're going to be called into account, which is what Jesus has made very clear in Luke 12, uh, with, a, with a guy who uh, was very rich in this world, and he you know, saw he had lots of crops, and so he told himself he was going to uh, tear down his barns and build bigger barns, and he can relax and rest and be easy. And then, fool, has told him, your soul is required of you ver this very night. What will you have to say for all that you have done? Or in Matthew 25, 1-46, where the entire emphasis in those three descriptions is that Jesus could return any time. It's going to require an accounting of judgment for what we've done with what God has given us, and it's not going to go the way many expect. And so, we're going to plan as for the future uh, as forward-thinking creatures, and that's okay. But we need to do it as the Lord wills, as James says. Uh, but we need to live as if we can give a good account of our stewardship if we die today, if the end actually is right now. So yeah, planning for the future is good, but not so much as to live life in the present. Because after all, if we make sure to save for the future, but we have nothing to give to those in need today, if our soul is required of us, will the Lord be pleased with us? In, in first Matthew 25, 31-46, or First John 3 and verse 17, that if we have the world's good and we see our brother and sister in need and we don't help, what does that say about us? If we devote so much time to preparing for our future that we have no time to encourage or strengthen our fellow Christians today, we don't find ways of telling other people about Jesus, if our soul is required of us, will the Lord be pleased with us? Um, we need to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to encourage one another as long as it's called today. And sometimes, I'm afraid, a lot of times... Uh, good Christians thinking very well put off very important things in the future that need to be done now uh, in the name of stewardship responsibility. Uh, n getting very caught up in this future-directed nexus that we often have uh, in the name of responsibility that sometimes can get us into trouble. Paul also says uh, something important, 2 Corinthians 5, 14-19. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So in a very real way, Christians are to see themselves as new creations in Christ. The old has passed away. We're now reconciled to God in Christ. Now, in Ephesians 2 and Titus 3, we cannot completely forget the past or deny that it happened. We were in sin. We could not save ourselves. We needed the grace shown by God in Christ. But this reminds us that we can't allow, allow our past to weigh us down. 
and it can't define us in ways contrary to what God has made known in the gospel. And as we live in the present, therefore, we must not allow our past from hindering us uh, from glorifying God in our lives. Because a lot of times the evil one will tempt us into thinking that we're no good, will haunt us with our past transgressions and failures. Uh, the evil one would like to tempt us into thinking our glory days are behind us, that maybe uh, we just need to coast on what we've already done in the past. And that's not true. For better or for worse, we cannot allow the past to define us because God has redeemed us in Jesus and he's empowered us to live for Christ today. Uh, that we nothing can separate us today from the love of God in Christ, in Romans 8, 31-39, and that we need to press on to obtain the goal of the resurrection in Philippians 3, 8-15, that if even Paul had not yet obtained it, who are we to say that we have already obtained it? And so in a very real way, Christians are to live in the here and now, and we need to encourage present living in, the, in a godly way. We cannot put off righteousness for the future. We can't coast on the righteousness of the past. We need to serve God and to do it fully today. So yes, Christians are to live in the present, but not without a view toward the past or the future, because our lives must be rooted in God and Christ. After all, we see in 1 John 2, 3-6, through 6, that we are to do the commandments of Jesus, that we are to walk as he walked. Our lives are to be defined by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In his life, Jesus did not serve himself, but he served others. Matthew 20, 25-28. In his death, Jesus suffered the kind of depredations of evil, and did not respond in kind. And in that way, he triumphed over sins by his wounds that we are healed in 1 Peter 2, 18-25. And in his resurrection, Jesus gained victory over death and extended the hope of the resurrection to everybody who trusts in him, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 20-58. And therefore, if we're going to be disciples or followers of Jesus, that we need to be conformed to the image of the Son in Romans 8, 29. We need to be shaped by Jesus and the life Jesus lived. Now this means that our lives are not all about us. Now, the, the logic, as we saw, the secular consensus inescapably leads to self-absorption. Because if there's no real meaning, life is all about the here and now, so my life should involve getting as much as I can and enjoying it. But the logic of the life of, in Christ inescapably leads to the opposite, a life of service. I am made in the image of God, Genesis 1. God has made me and bought me the price of the blood of his son. We get that in 1 Corinthians 6. And I live in the hope of the resurrection, and so my life should be involve becoming more like Jesus to the glory of God in Romans 8, verse 29. Now, we can only devote ourselves to lives of service if we truly believe there is some greater good beyond ourselves, and that there's some hope for the redemption of humanity. And that's why we really need to resist the narcissistic impulses of our society, making it all about us and, and how we can look, make ourselves look better and understand ourselves instead as very humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we said, so much of the rush of the here and now is an attempt to escape the past, that somehow we'd like to think we can make up for what was done in the past. But that's really not how it works. As Christians, we need to recognize our heritage in sin, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that anyone who says that he has not sinned and does not continue to struggle with sin is a liar and the truth is not in him, in 1 John 1, 8 and 10. We cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot make up for what we have done in the past. We cannot be saved by our works, in Romans 3 and verse 20. We are ultimately no better or worse than our ancestors. We're just different. Now, when we're liberated from having to judge our ancestors, 
we are able to learn from them and to appreciate them for who they were and to draw appropriate encouragement and warnings. It's the biblical approach to it. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul warns the Corinthians not to follow in the idolatrous footsteps of Israel in the past. And Hebrews 11, 1 through 4, the Hebrews author encourages Christians to draw strength from the examples of faith of those who had gone on before them. And we might be better served to appreciate the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. The, and not fall prey to the siren call of the myth of progress, that, in fact, everything is as it's always been, that life is cyclical, changes are cyclical, uh, that there are downsides to everything, as well as upsides, and we are not in a good place if we think we can just judge the past uh, as irredeemably wrong, and we as the enlightened saviors. It's also very important to recognize that evil is defeated by suffering and not the schemes of men. Because the world thinks that we can just overcome evil if, we're f if we fight hard enough, uh, may it be political fighting or physical fighting, uh, by those raging righteous warfare in those ways. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, you might get some solace for those views. But the way of Jesus is the strongest possible rebuke to such mythology. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul goes into great detail what God, Jesus has done for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because here's the thing. Jesus overcame because he endured suffering and did not respond in kind. He entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Ultimately, and perhaps horrifyingly, whatever you've accomplished by violent or legislative means can easily be undone through violent or legislative means. But the way of suffering cannot be undone. It cannot lose its integrity or its witness. And it's in this way, the cross, not the constitution, not the gun, it provides the ultimate way forward for the Christian in life. And that is why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34-39, that we cannot love anyone more than him. And in Matthew 16, we need to take up our cross and follow after him. Of course, above all things in the sermon, there is more to life than the here and now. In Acts 17, 30-31, Paul is speaking on Areopagus. In fact, he has previously been discoursing with some Epicurean philosophers and also Stoic, uh, different uh, philosophical viewpoints. He's sitting there in the midst of Athens. He's explained to them the foolishness of the way of idolatry and, and, and considering gods and images of gold or silver. And notice how he concludes what he has to say. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the game changer. For those without any hope in the resurrection, it's easy to believe only in the here and now. And that's the pattern of life that follows accordingly. As Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
But for those who trust in the resurrection of Christ, life in the here and now is just a prelude. It's a testing ground for the full life to come, for which we will be called into account. And so, 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 only makes sense in this life. Light. It's a very powerful message. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The reason that Paul was setting forth the importance of the resurrection on an Areopagus is because if there is a resurrection, there is an afterlife. And that grounds the basis on which he can say we're going to be called into account for how we've lived this life. That changes everything. If this life is just for us to live and enjoy and then we die, then we should just live it and enjoy and then we die. But if there is an afterlife, if there is something to life beyond this life, then we need to be prepared. We need to recognize that we're going to be held in account for all that we've said and done. And so even though the practicalities of the life might look similar, the fundamental approach could hardly be more different between life according to the Epicurean and the life that we live in Christ. In light of the resurrection, there is more to living than this life. And that's why we need to live our lives now according to the purposes of God so we may obtain that which is truly eternal life. So yes, we're only guaranteed this very moment in this life, but there is far more to living than this life. In Ephesians 5, Paul has the following to say, in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Making the best use, their English standard has been translated in other versions as redeeming the time. And it's a wonderful illustration there, redeeming the time, uh, to, to spend it well. Because plenty of people live for today, and they want little to do with the past, and they believe the future to be very bright, thinking only of themselves. The present, though, seems shorter than ever. But Christians are called upon by God to redeem the time, to make it good for God's purposes. We redeem the time when we do not allow our past to hinder us in serving God today in the present. We redeem the time when we're not enslaved to the tyranny of the present, to see everything only in terms of the early 21st century, to allow our energies and passions to be directed and manipulated by the powers and principalities over this present darkness to their ends and not to the glory of God in Christ. We redeem the time by not living for the future, presuming there will be later time for spiritual growth, evangelism, edification, and giving. For our lives are but a vapor. And if we are called upon to stand before God in Christ today, how could we justify our presumptions and lack of faithfulness if we waited to do tomorrow what God has called upon us to do today? We redeem the time by living, recognizing our redemption, our fundamental equality with all of the people of God made in God's image, and willingness to serve in humility as Christ did. We redeem the time by living according to the ethic of the cross, to find victory in suffering and not in the ways of this world. And we redeem the time by living in light of Jesus' resurrection, confident in God's promise of our own resurrection and life of eternity. And therefore we make the best use of what God has given us in the here and now to glorify Him for eternity. And therefore may we all live now to redeem the time God has given us to His glory so that we may obtain the resurrection of life. 
I want to thank you again for joining us today. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If you have, please share it with uh, family and friends and others on social media. If you have any questions or comments, you have a prayer request, you'd like to discuss this or other situations in greater detail, if you'd like to learn more about us, uh, come find out more about us online at witnesschurchofchrist.org. We're also on social media. If you'd like to contact me personally, uh, you can reach me at my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Thanks again. Have a great day.